Welcome to the CLA's podcast series, Rural Business Uncovered. In this series, we will review in detail the key issues facing landowners and rural businesses today. For example, you will hear about how rural tourism has found innovative ways to deal with the COVID crisis, farm diversification through the eyes of a CLA member and how they did it, what the future of food looks like and much more. The Country Land and Business Association are the only organisation dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA, where each week we discuss matters affecting the rural sector. Over 10 billion tonnes of carbon are stored in UK soils, roughly equal to 80 years of annual UK greenhouse gas emissions. This stored carbon is also critical to ensuring soils remain healthy and able to support ecosystems, underpinning the whole farm system. Industrial or intensive farming techniques can cause soil to deplete over time, threatening the productivity of land. Unfortunately, there's still so much we don't know about soils and soil health, and it leads to alarmist headlines like the UK only having 100 harvest left. While that might not quite be true, as Dr. Charles Kellogg, a famous US soil scientist said, all life depends on the soil. There can be no life without soil and no soil without life. They have evolved together. For this reason, it is pivotal. We rethink the way we use and manage land to ensure we conserve those carbon stocks. This podcast will explore why soils are so important for the climate, environment and food production. Karen Fisher, a farming advisor at the Soil Association, will tell us about what they mean for climate change goals and how healthy soils can also help adapt to climate change and tackle the biodiversity crisis. We will hear from Georgie Bray, who farms the RSPB Hope Farm, who has been undertaking practices on an arable farm that have improved soil health as a part of some long-term studies. We will hear about what she's learnt in the process and her top tips for farmers looking to undertake some of these practices. Well, Karen and Georgie, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. And I thought it'd be really good to start if you both could give a brief introduction to yourselves, starting with you, Karen. Hi, yes. So my name's Karen Fisher. I'm a farming advisor as part of the producer support team at the Soil Association. Brilliant. Thank you. And over to you, Georgie. I am farm manager of Hope Farm, which has been owned by the RSPB for the last 20 years. And we work to demonstrate and research wildlife friendly and sustainable farming practices. Well, thank you very much uh, once again for joining us. And uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation because we all understand and recognise how important soil health is to underpinning productivity, but also the role it plays uh, environmentally as well. And I thought I'd like to start w- with you, Karen, and uh, just to set the scene for us a little bit. What role does soil play in that fight against climate change? The farming industry is in a unique position because not only does it emit emissions, it can also keep them out of the atmosphere using soil. Farming to maximise soil health on farm 
will increase carbon sequestration in soils, which offers enormous potential to reduce atmospheric carbon levels. If we can also use farming practices, which lower the need for artificial fertilisers in soil, the system will reduce nitrous oxide emissions, which persist on average for 114 years and is 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide. The healthy soils also make farms more climate resilient, not only to floods, but also to droughts. This is vital considering the erratic weather we've seen this season, which is predicted to continue. It is fundamental, unless we reverse soil degradation across the world, as well as reversing the loss of biodiversity, we do not stand a chance to be able to meet the climate challenges we currently face. And Georgie, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, would you agree that, that we really need to tackle this issue? And, and, and are farmers generally open to changing their ways in, in looking at new ways of farming that is more friendly to, to support production, to support healthy soils and healthy environment? Yeah, I mean, for the first answer the first part, it, it is fundamental. And we notice it and other farmers are noticing it all the time, um, particularly the last few years where we've had these really wet autumns and winters and really dry summers. Every farmer across different soil types have struggled at different parts of the year. But there has been this consistent pattern that where we're looking to improve organic matter in the fields on our farm and on other farmers' farms as well, where they have been looking to maximise that. It's a long-term investment, but they've been more resilient to these really tricky growing seasons. And it's actually making a difference to the bottom line as well, which, again, is a is really tricky for farmers to maintain in this current climate. So it's really fundamental. And there's been a change as well in the farming community. It's always been well understood that the soil is like, that is the root of what we grow every all our crops and all of our, our whole business. But looking at that first to then help the crops grow rather than focusing on the crops as the, the main thing we need to nurture. If you look after the soil, then it'll look after our crops. It's that kind of ethos that I think has become much more predominant. So productive farming and environmental friendly farming go hand in hand in that respect. Uh, and Karen, you, you clearly would agree with that. And pick, picking up on an earlier point we, we've heard mentioned about the need to protect and increase soil organic matter. What exactly is soil organic matter? How would you describe it? So, yeah, so basically, soil organic matter is the term used for all living or once living material within or added to the soil. So it's an absolute essential element to healthy soil. Achieving high levels of soil organic matter, say, enhances the physical, chemical and biological properties of the soil. Organic matter is more than half carbon. So researchers often talk about soil organic carbon in the fight against climate change, but say that is basically soil organic matter. They're just the different ways of measuring the basic same soil property. Uh, and Georgie, would you undertake soil analysis quite frequently on your soils? Would you look at them, get them analysed, and so you can measure whether you're improving, whether they're getting any any healthier? Uh, yes. So we um, undergo the the basic uh, SOL soil analysis each year. Um, but to bolt on top of that, it's more recently. Uh, being the option that we can actually get more in-depth nutrient analysis and two measures of organic matter with that, which has been really useful for us. Um, also on our trial fields where we're looking at uh, cover crops and compost um, organic matter amendments, we've been measuring the change in organic matter for quite a few years. And that's kind of the important thing for us that we look at. It's the percentage change, because I think there's quite a lot of variability between 
um, soil. So it's quite difficult to compare between those types. And, and Karen, where would we find the most, you know, rich soils in terms of organic matter? You know, are, are they are they spread equally across the UK? Are there areas which are better than others? Where where do you think um, that they are? So the UK peatlands have the most uh, carbon-rich soil type. Um, so it's estimated that approximately 3 billion tonnes of carbon are stored in our peatlands in the UK. A lot of these are in the uplands, but there are a significant area of peatlands in the lowlands. I think Georgie farms on some of those lowlands. So conserving that peat is a really important if we are going to achieve our greenhouse gas emission targets. However, 70% of the land in the UK is farmed roughly, so we need to improve and we need to work at improving the health of and the soil organic levels in all our soils. And Georgie, tell us a bit more about your farm. I know you've undertaken a lot of practices to improve soil health over the years, but, but give our listeners a, a quick overview of, of what we do at Hope Farm and, and some of the farming operations there. So we're 180 hectares or 450 acres of arable, um, heavy clayland soils just sitting in the south of Cambridgeshire, which ha- has its own fun and games to play um the fields are on the larger side which is quite typical for the area so ranging from about five hectares to 30 hectares in size but split up with uh, wildflower margins as well on those bigger fields as i said our core aims are to demonstrate wildlife friendly farming using the mid-tier scheme but also tweaking farming practices in the field trying to advocate nature-based solutions to help us grow our crops more efficiently Um, and that's been a push on the farm particularly in more recent years where we're looking at operations in the field so our cultivation methods using compost additions of organic matter and reducing our input so that we don't just have the wildlife habitats that are helping biodiversity thrive around the edge of the field um, but also making that habitat in the field um, more sustainable and better for wildlife as well. Are you looking at ways in which you can minimise the cultivation, minimise the, the the operations you do on the land to, to try and limit any sort of carbon loss uh, and compaction of the soils? Uh, yes, we are. So we started five years ago to move towards a direct drilling system, which again on these heavy soils is tricky. We have spent quite a long time in trying to figure out how we can do that without creating a compaction in the soil that we can't get rid of. Um, and cover crops are really crucial to that and just being really careful with the operations that we do in the field. So about three years ago now, we almost had to press the reset button where soils were getting quite compacted in this new system. Um, and we've been slowly improving the resilience of the soil, getting air back into it with cultivations, and then we're starting to minimise them now and using like a diversity of cover crops to um, take to do the job of the cultivations for us. This is five years on and we still only just feel like we're starting to figure out what suits our farm. Of course. And each farm is unique, isn't it? Every situation, every farmer's situation will be different across the country. And Karen, listening to Georgie there, clearly she is somebody that's putting into place measures to improve the soil health on the farm. In terms of other farmers across the country, are there any barriers to uptake of these measures? Are there any resistance, um, cultural sometimes resistance to some of these initiatives? I think the main issue for changing farming systems is the financial pressure and also the increasing trend for short-term tenancies. These all put pressures on farmers to make more short-term decisions because, like Georgie said, a lot of these management practices 
takes a while to actually start seeing the benefits and you can actually come up against issues before you start seeing the benefits of using these practices on farm. So you need to be looking and planning long term rather than just season to season. And I guess agriculture sits in a very unique position, as, as you touched upon right at the beginning, insofar as, yes, it is an industry that, that produces um, carbon emissions, but also it, it can absorb carbon. Farming is a part of the solution as well. It is, yes. Good soil management can make a huge difference to, say, the carbon fixing potential of the soil and the profitability of the business, as Georgie said. Transition to something, say, such as we've been doing a lot of work at the Soil Association looking at agroecological farming systems which will both, say, increase soil and support a reverse in a decline of farmland biodiversity. And Georgie, in terms of the works you're doing, do you measure all the improvements uh, on an economic basis? Are you looking to improve the profitability of the farm or are you looking at also at other environmental benefits that, that are part and parcel of measuring the, um, the success of improving soil health? Yeah, I mean, we are looking at both things. And I was just thinking about when you were saying about these short-term benefits or short-term gains in profitability and I completely agree it is really tricky to overlook those so when we took on our new contractor Martin Lyons he had to make some big investments in the soil taking very much a sort of ride it out and stick to your core principles approach of what you know will work long term and it has taken a hit on profitability but it's keeping an eye on we're now sort of a few years on from that and we're starting to see those benefits where we can get on fields that we wouldn't have been able to get on before at this time of year, which with this wet autumn we've got is a massive relief to us. Um, the difference between getting winter cereals in the ground and not. I think it's fair to say that our core principles as a farm are for looking after biodiversity. I mean, we bought the farm 20 years ago to monitor the changes in biodiversity year on year which they have increased massively in our time which is fantastic but we can't convince any farmers to do that if we're not also maintaining a stable profit um, i don't think there's any farmer out there who would outright say or even believe that they don't care about biodiversity or the environment otherwise they wouldn't be working amongst it every day but yeah, we we do still have that pressure that overall we have to demonstrate that this kind of stuff can be done whilst yielding a decent profit. Yeah. And Karen, what's your thoughts on that, on the importance of making sure the business is a profitable, but before you can engage then in, in wider work, it's making sure that the business can sustain itself financially is, is so critically important to farmers. Yes, of course it is. It's not going to be a sustainable business, is it? Unless they're actually making a margin, a profitable margin at the end of the day. The new environmental land management scheme, which is the new government scheme that's coming in over the next six or seven years, we need to make sure that payments from that need to be higher than the current income foregone method of the country stewardship scheme to encourage the widespread uptake of it. I think from a financial point of view, looking at how farmers can get paid for looking after the environment. There are private companies evaluating their environmental credentials at the moment. So there are incentives from some of the larger processes for farmers to be rewarded and secure markets for benchmarking and improving, particularly carbon footprints on farm. There's also a lot of private interest at the moment for carbon offsetting in soil. However, there's no market protocol in the UK at the moment. So there's no 
set scheme out there for a farmer if they are looking at making a bit more profit on the environmental side from the private sector. Yeah, because that's really interesting. Do you think there could be a potential for farmers to be paid for the carbon stored in soils, for example? Absolutely. There's a couple of schemes. I say the US are ahead of us from that point of view. There's already a couple of schemes and protocols set up and companies starting to buy carbon offsetting in soil from farmers. So there's absolutely no reason why we couldn't set up a similar scheme in the UK as well, alongside the new environmental land management scheme. And are there you know, verifiable ways of measuring carbon that's stored in soils? That is one of the biggest hurdles at the moment. I think from both private company point of view and that the government DEFRA are looking at the moment, it's the soil health is a complex biological system. So how do we measure it and how do we pay people against it? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's clear from today's podcast that our soils are critical in tackling climate change and improving farm systems. However, with a vast amount of information out there, it can be hard to know where to start. The CLA has produced a carbon accounting guidance note exclusively for CLA members, which explains how to undertake a visual soil health assessment and where to go to get soils tested. Specialised CLA advisors are also available to answer any questions members may have. To find out how CLA membership can benefit you and your business, contact us today. Karen, I just wanted to pick up on one point around, you know, our ability to produce food efficiently, but also in a way that protects soil health. Now, do you think that message is understood and and one is commonly accepted? At the moment, there's a lot of discussion around increasing productivity within the field and then environmental management on the sideline. But I think ultimately, say, increasing protecting soil health, for an example, also increases your agronomic productivity anyway, like Georgie was saying on farm. So in turn, this also increases food efficiency. Uh, and, and Georgie, you know, can you give us some examples of where you've seen that in practice? Yes, it's been really interesting looking at our cover crop and compost trial that we've been running on farm. So that is three fields that we've put about 60 hectares in total um, with different treatments of using compost, uh, using cover crops and using a combination of the two against 
conventional, in inverted brackets, farming. It's taken a few years for us to get it right. I don't think we can still say that we've got it absolutely right, but we're more right than we were at the beginning. And this is five years on now. But it was really interesting a couple of years ago when we really started to think, wow, this is actually making a difference to how we can grow our crops. In our region in particular, growing all seed rate is really, really tricky. And a lot of farmers have stopped doing it. Um, even though if you get it right, there's a high potential to make a decent profit off of it. But it's just so risky because of um, flea beetle, probably mostly the tricky establishment season where it goes really dry, which makes it very hard for the crop to establish and then really wet as well, amongst other disease problems. Uh, but we were walking a field in May when the all seed rape was in flower in 2018 after three years of using these treatments. And the conventional quarter was near crop failure. Um, it was really sad to look at. Um, and we sort of looked in the stalks and there was a few flea beetle larvae feeding away in there. And then we went to the composted quarter, which had had 30 tonnes a hectare put on it, which is quite a lot um, over three years. But that looked okay-ish, same levels of flea beetle larvae in the stalks. And then we sort of walked into the half that had the cover crop put in it. And it was like you walked into a wall of oilseed rape. No insecticides were used as well for this harvest. And that made the difference between two tonnes a hectare, if not more, between the conventional and that quarter. And then where there was the cover crop spread as well, it was even better again. It really yeah, showed how much of a difference it can make by focusing on differences you can make to the soil. And to what extent do the cover crops improve the soil structure? What, what, what does it actually do? So they all do different things. I, I try not to overcomplicate it in my head by thinking about what each plant <laughs> does in too much detail. But they improve the soil structure with the different root structures you have. So if you have your big radishy things, they're better at breaking through big soil compaction or the harder soil compaction. Then you have the finer rooted things like basilias and your legumes. They're better at sort of breaking up the compaction in the soil surface. Um, and then different crops could do different things for the nutrients as well. So if in the ground long enough, your legumes will be capturing nitrogen. But the phacelia, I'm not entirely sure what, but quite a few, a few farmers, and we've also found that the phacelia can do quite a good job of releasing nutrients as well. So I'm not entirely sure what's going on there with it. I'm sure, well, Karen might be able to tell better than me, but what we try and do is, is not put a cereal cover in front of a cereal spring crop as that locks up nutrients rather than provides it to the uh, cash crop you're growing, um, but just provide a big diversity so it can do a suite of different things and capture nutrients throughout the so soil profile, depending on where the roots of each plant are. I've tried not to overcomplicate it, but I feel I've done that already anyway. <laughs> not, not at all, not at all. But I was going to bring Karen in there. To, you know, what's your views about getting the right crop rotation in place and using the right cover crops, as Georgie mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. Say, I think Georgie was spot on there, really. I don't think she overcomplicated it at all, really. <laughs> yeah. it is, say, I think you need to just cover up that bare soil with continuous plant cover. So it's like including your cover crops and your catch crops, particularly ones that protect soil and build fertility naturally such as the legumes that Georgie mentioned. So then you're also reducing your reliance on those artificial, bringing those artificial nitrogen and fertilizers into your system as well. 
And, and is that important? Bearing in mind, you know, uh, one of the challenges that farmers and landowners face is the growing costs of inputs and, and yeah, fertiliser cost is something that's continuously rising. Is it really sensible from an economic point of view that you're looking at ways to make sure that your soils are really nutrient uh, rich and productive without the need for external chemicals? Yeah, absolutely. So, say healthy living soils is the key, really. So, looking at your soil nutrient cycling and your biodiverse soils, using green manures, rotating and integrating crops in that encourage diversity, recycling your nutrients on the farm, making sure there's no waste and you're putting that nutrient for any livestock that you've got on the farm, in particular, making the most of those nutrients rather than introducing external inputs you make sure you're utilizing the best those the best you can first with things like your nutrient management plan and your soil testing and your slurry analysis and also putting it on at a time of year where it's not going to leach or volatilize so that pool of nitrogen is there and those nutrients are there for those crops to uptake when they're required. And, and I guess our understanding of soil science isn't necessarily anything new, but do you think that some of the knowledge, the skills and the practices have been lost in past decades because of over-reliance on other forms of having short-term uh, productivity gains through chemicals and fertilisers? Do, do you think we've, we've lost some of the core understanding of soil science? I think they say, I think kind of regenerative farming and agroecological agri farming systems are being discussed a lot at the moment. And I think this transition to those isn't really a transition. It's more going back to what we did previously, but potentially with a little bit more scientific knowledge about it. So these type of systems that take a whole farm approach that work with nature and thinking about all the organisms on that farm that call it home. So from the soil, micro and macro biota on that farm to the insects, birds and other mammals to make sure we do include those in our farm management plans rather than just confining those finding that nature to the margins around the farm. And, and Georgie, from the studies you've undertaken at Hope Farm, have you found anything new out? Have you discovered something that, that previously wasn't uh, common knowledge? Um, I think, well, farmers who've been growing cover crops for quite a while might have said that they've been seeing this for years. But one thing that we have started to gather evidence for is just how good these things to improve the soil health are for biodiversity all the way up the food chain which is a massive win for us because I've, agriculture covers three quarters of UK landscape and there's only so much whilst having your wildflower margins your good hedgerows and your seed mixes and stuff around the edge is really important there's only so much that you can take out of production but these things they help to improve production in a sustainable way um, and if done right, they can help to improve the farmer's bottom line. But we've been finding that they can, if you have a cover crop, that's George, you're able to create a habitat that uh, for some species is as good as if you had an overwinter stubble. But the comparison between the two on our soils is so different in terms of keeping the biology alive and enabling us to drill a profitable spring crop in the following year. So that's yeah, a real wake up call for us that these cover crops for even for things like skylarks, meadow pipits, even uh, snipe are using these uh, fields over winter. And have you been active as well in um, stewardship schemes to improve the farm and the environment? Has that been a key part to the business? Oh, absolutely. It's a reliable income 
for us, we know what's coming in each year and it's relatively easy to budget for. We have uh, 15% of our land that is put down to conservation areas, some of it in trials, um, but we have a reliable £9,500 income from stewardship each year. So that's brilliant for the farm business, but you do notice such a difference. We've been in stewardship since 2007 um, and by us being able to fund the planting of more wildflower margins, for example, the butterfly populations have just skyrocketed on the farm. We've got 400% more butterflies than we did when we purchased the place in 2000. And yet the changes it's made for bird diversity has also, it's been amazing. We've had the return of so many redless farmland species um, that, yeah, that hadn't been on the farm for years. It's brilliant. And what are your thoughts about the proposed new ELM scheme in England? Um, I think there's a lot of potential. We need to keep pushing to make sure that it is ambitious and delivers all that it can for our soils, for the farmers who run a sustainable business and for the biodiversity, all of those public goods that were outlined. I think there's so much that can be done to make sure that it, it gives credit to all of those. Um, but we, yeah, we just need to make sure that it isn't watered down. Yeah. Uh, and, and Karen, what are your thoughts about the um, the new ELM scheme? Do you think this is an exciting new way of rewarding farmers for producing public goods? Absolutely. Like Georgie says, really, it's it's got a lot of potential. My concerns are that it, is, that it will be watered down and we need to pay farmers above baseline for delivering these public goods. So, for example, if we're looking at soil organic matter, ideally as part of the scheme, Land manage, managers will have to monitor and, and report on soil organic matter levels on an area of their farm, not just carry out tick box exercises. That it's actually being it's being benchmarked and monitored on farm on a set time. The soil association we are saying at the moment that we really want to see farmers rewarded for the public good that great soil management can deliver. But as I alluded to earlier, we just need to make sure that these payments are higher than the current income foregone method of the countryside stewardship schemes. So we do encourage that. So it is a attractive options for land managers because it's a, it will be a voluntary scheme. So some land managers might think it's not worth my while going into this. I'm just going to farm the land I've got more intensively and not take that financial incentive from the environmental land management scheme, which is what we don't want to happen. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, and, and Georgie, do you agree with that? You know, that the scheme needs to be um, designed in such a way where farmers are rewarded adequately for producing public goods uh, and that the scheme is attractive for landowners. Otherwise, they, they will just seek to look at other ways of, of making their businesses resilient. And that could be intensive farming, could be all sorts of options. So, so the key to the success of ELM is, is in the funding and the way that those payments are made. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. Farmers are already very concerned and rightly so about where the money is going to come from that helps to stabilise the farm business. And if there is the money available to make sure that farmers are rewarded for doing good, sustainable farming, um, I think it's possible. But at the moment, we're already seeing actually farmers that are unsure of where the money comes from. And it turns the farming year into more of a, a firefighting exercise. And if you're firefighting, there's no way that you're going to be able to look for the long-term goals and long-term benefits. Also, there's there needs to be a reward for farmers to make more money for doing a better job of providing habitats. So at the moment, 
a farmer, whether they day in, day out, do everything they can to manage their winter bird seed mix, for example, like with the same amount of care as they would their winter wheat crop to get loads of seed resources available for birds over winter and probably cost them more. They're not paid any more than somebody who does the bare minimum of what's on the agreement and probably provides very few seed resources. And I don't think that's fair any more than if a farmer who is yielding half the tonnage per hectare on a winter wheat crop should not be paid the same amount as a farmer who is putting in a lot more effort to sustainably get a higher high yielding crop. And Karen, in terms of the way in which the, the industry communicates with the consumer, communicates with the public, there is that growing expectation on, on farming to provide some of the answers to climate change. And I think there'll be a, a degree of buy-in and support the public money is spent in this way to try and improve the, uh, the provision uh, and protection of public goods. Yes, I think the public are becoming a lot more aware now of that relationship between where their food comes from and farming practices and the decline in biodiversity and the potential for farmers to help with that decline, to help with climate change. So I think from an actual retailer point of view, a lot of those are putting pressure on farmers as well. So for their own PR campaigns, they're getting farmers to take some of those environmental credential boxes. And from a say direct public point of view, you can see in COVID in lockdown that there was, I can't remember the exact statistics, but the increase in organic sales, businesses that supply directly to the consumer really benefited off COVID at the time because a lot of they went directly to the farmer to get that supply, to shorten that supply chain, because it was more of a secure supply chain going directly from the farmer to the consumer. So I know Riverford, for example, some farmers that like pasture fed farmers that have beef, beef box schemes saw a massive increase in their sales due to that. Yeah, there's been uh, some fascinating changes in consumer behaviour on, on the back of COVID. And I guess the questions that surround that is to what extent will they be lasting changes? And uh, But certainly there's been a lot of talk around green recovery coming out of this pandemic uh, and building the economy on green credentials and certainly schemes like ELM uh, and, and ways in which farming can, can contribute towards tackling climate change is going to be of critical importance. But before I draw this podcast to a close, I got this one final question I want to ask uh, both of you, and that is what would be your closing messages and top tips to farmers and landowners listening to this podcast who are keen to improve their soil health what's your top tips so starting with you Georgie top tips I think something that's probably I mean it soils vary massively so goals for different farmers and what's best to do will vary um, so in your lighter draining soils you'll be aiming to increase organic matter um, whereas in the heavy clay soils you're wanting to improve the soils travelability throughout the year by improving the soil's resilience um, with soil structure. But one thing that is applicable across all is actually looking at the soil regularly, uh, not doing more in terms of cultivations than is necessary, um, and trying to do everything you can to let the plants and the microbes do more. Um, and yeah, only tilling if you have to. Not making changes all at once as well, um, because if it all goes right, you're not sure which was the thing that made it good. And if it all goes wrong, you might think, well, I don't want to do any of that again, when it might only be one of those things that uh, made yeah, made that approach go wrong in the first place. Thank you. And over to you, Karen. Well, the first things 
is to improve your soil health monitoring across the farm. And there was some research done recently that showed that only 50% of farmers were actually looking at their soil organic matter at the moment. So a lot test annually for their nutrients, but some of them have never actually tested their soil organic matter. So that's one of the first things I would say is to kind of practically actually from analysis point of view and going out into the field with a spade point of view, make sure you are benchmarking and measuring your soil health. Also to make sure you get that plant and animal matter going back into the field. So use your manures, use your composts, use your crop residues, go back into the field. Make sure that you minimise the amount of time that you've got any bare soil on your farm. So use that continuous plant cover. Another important one, which I think is very underestimated, is trees on farmland. So integrate them into the farming system, not just look at them as a separate forestry industry, because they can bring a lot of benefits onto the farm, such as natural barns for livestock shelters on livestock farms, windbreaks for crops, as well as improving your farm climate resilience and potentially bring an extra income into the farm if you're planting trees such as fruit trees for example and also it goes back to that reducing your soil compaction from both machinery and livestock on your farm as well well Karen and Georgie, thank you both very much for joining the podcast. You've shared some really good practical pointers for our listeners. And I think you both, both of you have pointed out that healthy soil is good for the production and is also good for the environment. Uh, but we've reached the end of this episode, I'm afraid. Uh, but until the next time, on behalf of Karen Fisher, Georgie Bray and myself, Alan Jones, thank you for listening and bye for now. If you're not a member of the CLA, you can join today. More information can be found on our website, www.cla.org.uk. Thank you for listening, and I hope you can join us again soon. You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast, the CLA's new weekly podcast released every Friday. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.